Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mindshifters Radio. Today and more. Her debut memoir, May Cause Side Effects, is the first book on antidepressant withdrawal to hit the mass market, a notable milestone in the journey to bring global awareness to antidepressant withdrawal. She is also an award winning chef and Food Network Chopped champion and founder of the newsletter Happiness is a Skill. Brooke, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I have uh, been thoroughly uh, impressed with, uh, scared by, um, and, and and heartened by the book you wrote, May Cause Side Effects, and uh, I'm hoping you can tell us about which aspects of that book you want to promote most. <laughs> you know, I always struggle with this question because there really are five or six different kind of avenues and directions you can take from my book. And I want to talk about all of them all the time and we never have enough time. Um, but the, the main reason why I wrote may cause side effects is because it is the first book that, you know, was bought by a traditional publisher and is being marketed towards the mass market, which is all very important on the subject of antidepressant withdrawal. And, that is a topic that acts, that affects tens of millions of people, but they don't know. And we need to make sure people understand this because there are so many people on antidepressants all around the world, and people need to know that getting off of them is not as simple as getting on them. And so for me, the book is it's a memoir. It's a pure memoir. It tells the story of what happened when I was pulled off Effexor XR and Wellbutrin XL in a rash and uh, – not very smart way in 2016, and it goes into the year I spent in severe antidepressant withdrawal. I hope that when people read the book, whether or not it's a patient going through withdrawal or a family member of someone in withdrawal or clinicians especially, 
they read the book and they are better able to identify what an antidepressant withdrawal looks like as opposed to what usually happens, which is people confuse it for either the reemergence of, you know, the depression or anxiety or whatever they were experiencing that led them to take these drugs in the first place. And in even worst case scenarios, people get labeled bipolar, schizophrenic, or a whole sorts of other, other um, mental illnesses because their symptoms actually look like the criteria for those illnesses. So the hope of this book is that it, you know, cuts down on misdiagnosis, that it actually helps people who want to get off these drugs get off of them safely so they can live the life that they want to and keeps people from, you know, being on drugs they never need to be on for an illness they don't have. And uh, and, that's kind of the work I do. (laughs) Yeah, and as you say, so often when people are going through whatever the backlash or withdrawal or you know, the flood of symptoms that happen when they stop taking the medications, some of those people who are not as well educated about this topic think, oh, this is a recurrence of the symptoms that mm-hmm. say you need the medication. This means mm-hmm. you really are sick or crazier. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's rarely the case. Um, the other point I wanted to make is that the book is such a powerful read because mm-hmm. you're such a good writer. Well, and, <laughs> and, and that, and that has, it's a blessing and a curse because people might take it more as a novel or, or that you're just sensationalizing this, whereas because I have experience in the field, I know this is just a raw gut-level explanation yeah. of the horrors of Mm-hmm. going through withdrawal in a very rough and, as you said, in not a very intelligent way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I am an artist and a writer at heart, so I worked for many years really massaging the language to make sure that it was getting the feel of the experience across in a in a powerful way, but also a compelling way because, you know, at the end of the day, storytelling is what changes you know, it's, that's the movement. That's the story. People can get data and research thrown at them all day, but we're all kind of numbed out on that, or we think it doesn't apply to us. It really doesn't matter unless you're getting to the emotion of it. So that part was so important to me. And, you know, it's an extremely accurate representation of what was happening. So, you know, if it makes people uncomfortable, then I think they need to look at that within themselves because this is what happened to me. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the wonderful writing had me, you know, staying with it and wanting to, you know, know where it goes. And so you're, you're, you're in that um, page turning kind of a, of a process and it can be um, easy to forget that the topic is so intense and so mm-hmm. crucial for us. Whereas you say, many, many people are struggling with this, either staying on meds for years at a time and or getting off of them before, you know, there's an appropriate evaluation and a way to, and you mentioned at the end of the book, the the idea of hyperbolic uh, tapering, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that, you know, people like Peter Bregan, when he writes about, you know, psychiatric Mm -hmm. drug withdrawal in his book, he talks about how there really isn't any prescription about how to come off of these unless you're deeply connected to the individual 
and their experience yeah. and their symptoms. Um, yeah. And that's that's rare to find in a professional, in a medical doctor. Uh, I mm-hmm. think you mentioned in the book that there aren't that many people who are well-versed. You went to a psychiatrist who's supposed to be a specialist. Mm-hmm. And um, it's almost as though uh, they take offense at the idea that you want to go off mm-hmm. that. And, mm-hmm. and, and rather than being really well-versed in how to do that and getting to know you as a person and um, then working with you at a, at a plan for you, uh, you had a horrible experience because you had pretty much the opposite, somebody who was just mm-hmm. going by a formula and and yep. basically, uh, you know, setting up the appointments and making sure you could pay for them. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then, you know, it was kind of heartbreaking to read when you went to say, I really want to go off of the second medication. And basically you heard from the psychiatrist, uh, a female nonetheless, uh, good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good luck with that. So. Yep. So never saw her again. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and can you can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned looking back on this about how an intelligent, creative person like you could have been thrown into the situation or or grown into the situation where the adults in your life thought you need, you know, a whole bunch of medicines in you for the next fifteen years. What was Yeah. What, what what do you understand about that looking back on it the context here is is really important because it adds another layer of complexity to my situation and so for me what happened is my my father died suddenly when i was 15 and this was 2001 so we have to really think about the time and place there although i would i would not like this has gotten any better so maybe the time and place doesn't matter bottom line is that my father died and, you know, I had a reaction to that, obviously, because who wouldn't? And, you know, I wasn't actively suicidal. My grades hadn't absolutely plummeted. I wasn't hanging out with the wrong crowd or, you know, suddenly got into street drugs. I was just stoic and in shock and lost. I mean, these are things that I think are completely normal reactions. And so I was taken to a child psychologist who called up my mother one day and said, you're wasting your money because what Brooke needs is a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. So I'm diagnosing an anxiety and depressive disorder and recommending medication. Here's the name of a child psychiatrist I recommend. And and you were 15 at the time. I was 15, yeah. So not only that, you know, we had a small family. It was my mom and me and my dad. And so losing my dad meant that my mom suddenly didn't have the other person who she would bounce ideas off of when it came to me. Furthermore, she was grieving herself. So, and she's not a doctor. So, you know, what, what else is she going to do other than say, well, okay, we'll follow the expert's recommendations. And so I was taken to a child psychiatrist and within 10 minutes, as you do, I had a couple scripts. And so I just, started taking them. And, you know, I was in the position to question the adults or the experts around me. I mean, we've all grown up to listen to doctors and, you know, go to the doctor and trust that whatever they say is truth. And so when the doctor told me, the psychiatrist told me that I had a chemical imbalance in my brain and, you know, I was depressed and anxious and I was going to need to take these antidepressants, who was I to question that? Like, why wouldn't I believe that? And 
you know, on top of that, it, it kind of it validated what I was feeling because I was depressed, for God's sakes, because my dad had died six months before. I mean, this isn't this isn't a shocking revelation, but nobody likes feeling bad. Nobody likes feeling sad. And, you know, for me, the entire my entire trajectory had just fundamentally changed. So not only was I, you know, grieving and sad and depressed and all these things about the actual physical loss of my father, but it completely reframed my, you know, that was the moment when I realized that I wasn't going to live forever. And we all have that moment. It comes, it usually doesn't come when you're 15, but these are existential anxieties that are valid that need to be worked through. So I suddenly had a reason there's yeah. also the idea that uh, um, it wasn't highlighted, but a little bit later in the book, I think you revealed that your parents had a family business yeah. when when your dad died. Mm-hmm. So then it wasn't just you lost your partner. She also then had to do all this extra work yeah. with the business. Um, mm-hmm. And you also reveal through the book how your father uh, really struggled with his anger um, yeah. He 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 had a, a real clear way to express his anger. Yes, <laughs> but, he did. <laughs> but, but but not maybe so much uh, fluency with a, the subtleties of other emotions. And you were very close to him, so yeah, you did the best you could, but you bottled a lot up. And then um, uh, I yeah. seem to remember a situation with going to the doctor to need one stitch in your hand. Mm-hmm. And and having all of these tears come out, and then your mom having mm-hmm. to try to explain to the doctor, wait, her dad just died, and yeah, it, it's that kind of just the flow of life that if you don't have anything other than a bottle of or a list of prescriptions in your toolkit, you just give prescriptions. But there are so many other yeah. things that could be done with a 15 year old. Mm-hmm. Who had a limited range of ex- of exposure to various emotions and lost his, her father that you didn't get the benefit of, and then no. because you were so intelligent and because you were so driven, you just kept churning through life. With yeah. describe for us what you were churning through it with what 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 was the impact of having all of those medicines in your system. I mean, they certainly didn't really make me feel any less depressed or I, I would say, you know, like, like most people commentate the lows are higher and the highs are lower, right? Like it takes, it takes all the, it took all the edges off. It numbed me out. So you have the impression of being better when in reality, you're just numbing yourself uh, through whatever's going on. I mean, I still, you know, had the ability to focus on my SATs and graduating and going to college and all those things. But what it took away was curiosity and wonder and ambition. It just kind of made me this, you know, slave to the expected, right? Like I needed to go to college and then get a job and then get an apartment and make money. And there was, but I never had, because I was so kind of disconnected from myself, I never had the, ability to turn inward and say, what do I actually want and what kind of life do I want to live? And I, you know, I do think that on on some level that's, that's common for people of that age, but there should be a level of curiosity and experimentation happening at that time where you kind of figure out what you like and what you don't like. I never did that because I was always defaulting to the path of least resistance because from my perspective, 
you know, I had been given this message at a very formidable age that I had a chemical imbalance in my brain, so I was kind of fundamentally always going to trend toward melancholy and be broken. So if that's the message you receive and that's the identity that you create, then there's no reason to be curious about the world because it doesn't matter if you're, you know, an artist or, you know, a banker or or an insurance agent, you're going to be depressed no matter what. So just do what's the easiest with the passively passively resistance, which at the beginning doesn't really seem to be that consequential, but you start doing that for 5, 10, 15 years, like I was doing, you eventually get to a point where you're living a life that's so wrong for you that the depression just continues being your friend along the path, and you have a rationalization for it, so you have no reason to question it. The other thing when in reality, about, maybe your life is wrong with you. And the other thing that you write about so well is that your actual perceptions were changed dramatically. You were numbed down. You didn't see yeah, my colors. sensory perception. And, mm-hmm. and, and you tolerated burns, you know, from the bakery, mm-hmm. and um, you didn't really see colors as well as you started to mm-hmm. as you came off the medication. Um, I think you wrote about it beautifully. And... Um, it's the kind of thing that you couldn't even understand until after you come off the medication. No. Because it, no. it was your norm. It, it was for yeah. 15 years it was your norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like if someone, you know, dripped just a little bit of, like, liquid cellophane on you every day for 15 years. Eventually you're going to be covered in this layer of plastic and you're not going to realize how you've been losing little, little bits of perception. I mean, literally, like, when I when I started to get off the antidepressants, literally colors brightened. Wasn't, this, is not, this is not a perception. This is literal that colors got brighter, and my hearing became more sensitive, and clothing, and, you know, what I like to watch on TV, what I like to eat, it all changed. I mean, it was, it was, it was literally affecting every single aspect of my personality and my perception of the world. And I had no idea because it was so normal to me. And as you say, when you started so early, it's such a formative period, 15, 16, Mm -hmm. 17. Um, What do you see now looking back on it that you think allowed you to break free of it? Of the antidepressants or the depression? Of of the antidepressants, of, of the routine. Well, I, you know, I had a bit of an extenuating circumstance because I had had this opportunity to travel around the world for a year that dropped into my lap out of nowhere. And I kind of couldn't ignore that. It was such a big opportunity. And I realized that logistically I was going to have a lot of problems with the number of drugs I was on and actually getting them all around the world. And I I couldn't source them from the places I was going because we weren't going to big cities. We were going to little towns and villages and islands. And so I, you know, there wasn't going to be a, I couldn't, you know, reliably get my effector in Europe where where venfaxing is banned. Like it's not even legal there. So I said, I've got a problem. (laughs) Um, and so that was kind of the first reason why I said, okay, let me, let me see if I can get off these and discover my baseline. And like, maybe I need to be on something else. Maybe I wouldn't, I really didn't know, but I knew I had to at least address the situation at hand. And so then when I started to actually get off of the drugs, 
you know, that, and I and I was having such severe withdrawal, but I was also having these little moments of, you know, when the colors changed and brightened, it was this kind of holy crap moment where I said, if these drugs were affecting the way I literally see color, what else did they affect it? And so there was this, I was really angry because I felt like I had been robbed of beauty for 15 years because, like, color is wonderful, you know? And to have not really seen that for 15 years, I just deeply pissed off. Combine that with uh, some world-class stubborn stubbornness, I just said, you know what? I'm not going to do this. Like, I'm going to ride out this withdrawal. I didn't know how long it was going to last at that point. But I just was so angry at the situation that I said, we're getting through this and I'm going to get off these drugs. And it was that anger and stubbornness that actually pushed me through the worst of it because I knew that I couldn't go back. I couldn't like go from seeing color and then go back to everything being muted. I just couldn't do it. It made me too upset. I wanted to know who I was. My only frame of reference was when I was a child. My dad was alive. Like that was just, I'm so angry. I still am angry about that. Well, and the other thing that you write about so powerfully is that even though you were on them before you started trying to get off of them, you were still very, very focused on ending your life mm-hmm. and had a plan. And, you know, so whatever benefit was supposed to be given to you from taking these meds, um, it wasn't ending the suicidal depression. Right. And if they're not doing that, then what the hell are they doing? Right. I mean, it's not exactly a glowing advertisement for their efficacy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, so often the case when people uh, like Robert Whitaker write about it, you know, the anatomy of an epidemic um, Mm -hmm. by a number of different measures. If these drugs are supposed to be helping and we have so many of them and they're being Mm -hmm. given to so many people, then why are the rates of people going on disability for mental health skyrocketing you know why mm-hmm. are why are so many people more having to have them in this country and not other countries etc so there's really powerful yeah. questions to be asked and a book like yours i think can really help people on that individual level and on the systemic level step into questioning mm-hmm. this so thank you for yep. being willing to put it out there so honestly You're welcome um and it's interesting because the suicidal ideation really pretty much evaporated when I got the drugs out of my system. I mean, even even in withdrawal, when it was just so hard to handle, the the suicidal impulses disappeared. And you know, it. I know I'm not the only person who has felt that shift. So it really brings into question, at least for a percentage of people, for me, like at what point do we maybe face the uncomfortable truth that at the end of the day, at least for some people, and we've done far more severe things in this world for far fewer people than this has affected, you know, when do we start to acknowledge that maybe the drugs are actually part of causing the problem or at least prolonging it? That's an individual question, I think, but for me, it's very clearly the truth. Well, unfortunately, you know, more and more people are coming through medical school and then 
finding books like Robert Whitaker's and others, mm-hmm. and perhaps yours and Peter Bregan's, and saying, wait a minute, none of this yeah. was covered in medical school, and what if there's a whole different range of ways to help people with mental health struggles than just um, matching a list of symptoms with a list of medications? Yeah, and I would actually really like the a bifurcation of psychiatry. I think that we really need to treat never medicated people differently than we treat medicated people because the the assumption of the DSM is under the assumption that you are not influenced by a psychiatric drug. So, if you if you have a spontaneous schizophrenic episode, then in theory you're supposed to follow the directions in the DSM or whatever and, you know, go down that route. That's a very different scenario than someone who's been on powerful psychiatric drugs, possibly multiple psychiatric drugs for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, and then has some some, some sort of break because a medication was changed, and now they're giving a diagnosis of schizophrenia and treated as if it was, you know, a first-time thing. Like, it, it makes no sense to me. And I see so many issues as a direct result of polypharmacy, of people getting moved all over on their drugs, of, you know, being prescribed one drug on Monday and two Mondays later, they're saying, oh, it's not working, let's give you something else. Like, these things create these psychological symptoms. So I would love to see, and I, you know, I think that a lot of people want to put you in a box of, you know, pro or anti-anything, right? I think that realistically these drugs aren't going away. So we need a lot more education and true expertise and specialists on how they actually work, what the different side effects are and manifestations in people. So if someone comes in and they say, hey, I was 17 years old and I was diagnosed as bipolar with depression and ADHD, I'm on one drug for each of these, and now I'm having these symptoms, I want a doctor to look at them and say, hey, you are on a ton of competing drugs. We need to figure out your genetic ability to metabolize these. We need to maybe get you off a couple of them and see if symptoms improve before they are immediately just, you know, hospitalized and tranquilized even more. And that is a different practice than someone who is in a crisis for the first time or they're having their first bout of, you know, depression and anxiety and maybe they're in a situation that's so extreme that everyone involved thinks they need a little bit of you know, psychopharmological health. That is a two different practices entirely, and yet there's no distinction. There's no nuance at all. And, like, not, it's not even to say about, you know, the, you know, the 40-year-old woman whose both kids leave for the first time, and she's feeling a little bit of empty nest syndrome, and so her OBGYN or her JP gives her some pastel. That's, that's a totally different problem, too. But that's the point. The point is, is that this is extremely diverse. It's extremely di- nuanced. It's extremely representative of the individual who's involved and what happened to that individual, and yet we put these stupid blanket diagnoses and prescriptions on everyone and then walk around wondering, oh, we don't have any better solutions, and it's almost, you know, why doesn't it work? It's just, it's not that hard. But no one wants to look at it because that takes time and effort and forces us to face some very uncomfortable truths. Well, and it it requires changing a paradigm in the way Mm – the, the the medical field practices that and um, 
you know, there's all kinds of uh, dynamics and political reasons why that's challenging. But the mm-hmm. most important relative to what we're talking about is the clinical impact on people. And so yeah. and uh, I just like the fact that a book like yours puts it out there for people that there is the option that, you know, there are more and more people. It's not a flood. It's not a tsunami yet of people who are studying this and willing to help you get off with a hyperbolic tapering or whatever. But it is an option. And you're just one of the many people who are experiencing that, but you're putting it out there in your story. So it makes it more available to people. Yeah, I, you know, as much as um, I, I generally don't really go through life with a cynical outlook, but I do have a fairly cynical uh, view of the paradigm shift here. I don't think it's going to come from the top down. And I think if you wait for science to come around and solve this problem for you, you're going to be waiting a lot longer than you want. So therefore, this becomes an individual problem to be solved, both on the part of the individual and on the practitioner. It takes both. And so this is what's entirely frustrating to me is that I get the paradigm in the system we're in and it's profit driven, it's politically driven. It's okay, fine. We know that, but this is also not something that you don't have the power to change, address and research on your own, whether or not you're a doctor or a patient. So the fact that we have psychiatrists and doctors who it's your job to be the expert and to go down the road of continuing education and to read a wide variety of research on this topic, and they don't, that frustrates me because that influences the patient. And on the same, on the same, in the same vein, if you're a patient, it's kind of on you now to actually have some medical literacy and understand how research happens in this country and how, what we know about these drugs that you might not see on the commercial, like you have to take your agency into your own hands a little bit because you can't expect your doctor to do this. And even the most well-meaning doctors in the world, of which I think a lot of them actually are, they just have bad information. They don't have time because they're so bogged down with an absolutely crappy insurance system. So a big reason why they can't do their own research and stay up to date is because they're too busy trying to find codes in order to get paid to do their job. Like it's, the system's totally broken, but you can fix it for yourself within if you take a little bit of initiative and that needs to happen on both ends. Well, and that's the kind of thing we've been trying to promote uh, with this podcast of psychiatrists like Dr. Jody Skillicorn, who got out mm-hmm. of her medical degree and then read Anatomy of an Epidemic and said, oh, my gosh, I've got to reeducate myself and figure out yeah. how to help people in a different way. And then she wrote the book Treating Depression Without uh, Medication. And uh, I think she's one of uh, six or eight different integrative and or functional medicine psychiatrists that we've interviewed just on this podcast alone in the yeah, past two and a half years. So it's it's happening that people are waking up to it. But as you mm-hmm. say, it's going to happen from the bottom up. It's not going to happen. Yeah. The system is going to change at mm-hmm. the insurance company level or at the medical school level. Yeah, unfortunately, I I I want to I I want to speak to as many medical schools and as many residents as possible. I think that you got to plant this seed early. 
um, the most frustrating conversations I have are with people who've been doing this as a, for a while and just kind of refuse. But when you get in the medical school, you, you just get them earlier. <laughs> and I don't yeah. expect people to change careers. All I'm asking is that, hey, you need to know that psychiatric drug withdrawal and specifically antidepressant withdrawal is a very real thing. This is what it looks like. This is how you can avoid it. Here are the PET scans that show, you know, the plasma levels and the cert occupancy of each individual drug that will explain to you why you can't just say, hey, cut this pill in half for two weeks and then stop. Like, we have the research. It's not like I'm some, you know, conspiracy theorist here. I can show you the actual PET scans that were done for this drug and explain this. Why me, the chef, is the one having to do that is a baffling question. <laughs> but uh, here we are. And here so I'm going to do it. <laughs> And thank you for doing it. Uh, the, the other thing that um, I, I wanted to ask you about is what do you think you learned most about or, or learned most from your year of travel? You know, through the fog of mm. all of the the extra intensity of the withdrawal in the first, you know, few months of yeah. it. That was a fascinating part of your book. Um and you had such detail for the first couple stops, I thought, uh-oh, she's either going to, because we're running out of pages in the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> she's either going to say, oh, I dropped out and, and it didn't work out, or she's going to magically wrap this up. So what would you say you learned most from that year of travel? Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the real key part about the travel in my book is it's, you know, it's, it's I often wish that when people reach out to me and, you know, they're in their own withdrawal process, I wish that I could replicate the situation I was in for them. Because what it did for me is that the organization and the, the program I was doing, we traveled to a different place every month. So one month I was in Malaysia and the next month I was in Thailand and then Cambodia and Croatia and so on and so forth. And what that did is it completely removes any external stimuli that you can blame for your own problems. So your environment's constantly changing. So you can't, you know, in my case, I had spent so many years creating a narrative in my head that the source of my emotional uh, distress was because of my business partner or my, or living in New York or not having enough money or not, you know, finding the dream partner or all of these things. There were so many reasons that I could look outside of me and point to and say, that's the problem. If I could just fix that because I was in the same place doing the same thing. As soon as I started traveling and had absolutely, you know, gotten rid of every single one of those external stimuli. And furthermore, that wasn't following me from place to place because if I was upset about something in Malaysia, well, that was going to go away in three weeks when I was in Thailand and Oh, shocker, there was something new. And so what you learn really quickly in that constantly changing environment is that the problem is you. And people don't like that because especially for, you know, emotional and mental uh, health, it, it feels so outside of your control. It feels like something that's happening to you. But I looked at it and said, okay, if I'm taking myself with me wherever I go, I know that I have the power to figure out how to do this differently. And I was forced to because the withdrawal symptoms were so bad 
that I was desperate enough to start trying new things. And as I started doing that, what we were really doing was kind of addressing all of this, you know, kind of deep existential wounding. Then things started to get better and I'm not as triggered anymore because I healed the issue and so on and so forth. So it got to a point when I was writing where I was finally starting to feel well enough that it wasn't a book about traveling. It wasn't a travel memoir, so there was no need to keep writing. <laughs> so that's why you didn't get. Well, the but, half but, of but that I trip. think <laughs> I, I think you did a, a beautiful job of explaining how it made sense then to just give quick summaries of the other stops yeah. because yeah. you had done such an integration of. Mm-hmm. Uh, dealing with your new level of perception and getting through the withdrawal. And as you mm-hmm. talked about facing some fears, you know, learning to scuba dive and, and, and doing it with all people that weren't, they weren't your family that you grew up with. They weren't mm-hmm. your best friends for years. They, yep. As you said, the environment and the people kept changing and yet you were able to make that progress. So, I could yeah. kind of sense as you were writing that you were building that core strength that's so essential for yeah, all of exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah. That was that was, was really shaken to your core when you were 15 and you lost your dad, and, yeah, then, and then the was, meds got thrown on it. And exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I I wasn't really given the opportunity to build tools of resilience when my father died uh, because I was medicated so quickly. So withdrawal was a crash course in that and then even more so I had to then kind of learn all the things that I think I would have learned more slowly in my 20s but that I didn't learn because I was you know living in a state of despair the whole time and once I you know got off the drugs and suddenly actually wanted a future I wanted to live that well then I had reason to have to gain some tools and to really get to know myself and understand the the flow of emotion and intensity and the fleetingness of everything and how we're meant to change and grow and change our minds and, you know, pay attention to how we feel around certain people or certain places or experiences. It's all of those things that if you listen to it, it's what really leads you to the life that you want. But if you ignore that, then you end up in a place you don't want. And yeah. And the other thing is that during that period in, in your teens is when most of us from a relatively healthy family start to learn how to integrate the good stuff we're getting from mom and the good mm-hmm. stuff we're getting from dad and the not-so-good stuff from mom mm-hmm. and the not-so-good stuff from dad. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't have a chance to do that because of uh-uh. the grief that wasn't processed and then the, kind of this concrete shell around you that was formed mm-hmm. by the dumbing of your senses, et cetera, from the medications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how long has it Good been point. now si- since you've been off the meds? Uh, long enough that I'm sort of losing track. So I think we're approaching the seven-year anniversary. I believe I got off the last drug sometime in the summer, like August of 2016. So, and I, I was on a bunch of other prescription drugs, too, for physical stuff that had appeared within the year of being on antidepressants. So that's the other factor of this too, Thyroid right? So the antidepressants, yeah. Yeah. Um, the the antidepressants caused physical side effects that we then had to medicate with more with more pharmaceuticals, and so I didn't know up or down with my body. I mean, it wasn't just an emotional problem. It was it was 
my thyroid was a mess. I had something called bile reflux disease. Um, I had to get, I got off all of those drugs because I was just at a point where I said, I need to, I need to be really clear of everything and just see where I'm at. And I haven't taken a prescription drug now in six years. So no, the thyroid problem went away, which is miraculous. The bile reflux disease went away. Everything disappeared. It took a while for me to stabilize, like for my, my physical body to stabilize as well, but I just gave it time. Are you noticing still little things that are still changing with the, the further you go away from the medications? I'm, I'm thinking from a, about, from a physical standpoint? From the mental, emotional, physical, the whole thing. I'm thinking about Jill Bolte-Taylor who helped rewrite the ideas about what happens after stroke when you know she was a, a neuroscientist herself who had her own stroke and it oh, used right, to be that they, they they would tell you that um most of what you recover after a stroke you get from you know after six months and if you haven't gotten it at the end of a year it's not coming back and she was rewriting that because she was documenting how things were coming back in her functioning seven and eight years after her stroke yeah i the these are just such crappy messages to give to people. I mean, I understand that, you know, like, regardless of whether or not the research is sound, I understand, like, I love science. I love that we have science and research in order for us to give a general, you know, umbrella of what might be happening. But it's the law of averages, and you can't apply averages to the individual. So to tell them, oh, you're not getting any feeling back after a year, God, that's just, it's cruel. It sets people up for failure. And... So, yeah, for me, I mean, I, there are definitely still some things that I will never know and often wonder if this would be different had I never been on the antidepressants. Um, the, the, like, sexual health side effects, I really wonder about, you know, there's PSSD, which is post-SSRI sexual dysfunction that I know I experienced a level while I was medicated, and uh, things have gotten better. Um, in the years since I haven't been medicated, but I still feel the only description is rather stunted in a way that I think had to do with the timing because I was medicated right at puberty. And I think that that has actually fundamentally altered that aspect of my life, which, um, you know, it's something I didn't, I wasn't comfortable enough to talk about when I was writing the books. It's not in there. Uh, it's something I've become more comfortable with the older I've gotten in, and I have seen improvement on that, but it's taken, you know, it's taken, it's taken a lot of work and emotional work and, you know, counseling work and forgiveness and grace. And so that's, you know, that's one aspect. Um, I'm still dealing with gut health issues that I think were caused by the long-term use of all these psychiatric drugs. Well, all the drugs I was on, actually. Uh, gut biome stuff. I mean, 90% of your serotonin is created in your gut, right? So if you're on an antidepressant, it's likely that that's affecting your gut somehow. So I'm looking at a stack of supplements over here that I'm working on to help just still get my digestion functioning uh, in an unproblematic way. Um, and then emotionally, you know, What's interesting is that nothing nothing I've experienced since withdrawal has been as bad as withdrawal, but sometimes you can get little little snippets of sort of what I felt in withdrawal. Like if I'm if I'm pretty if I'm feeling pretty emotionally dysregulated or my nervous system is dysregulated, I am still very sensitive to noise. 
Um, that was something that was a big problem in withdrawal for me. And I still feel that if I'm, if I'm not kind of feeling emotionally strong or if I haven't been taking care of myself. And if any, but then I, but now I just look at that and I say, okay, well, if you're having trouble being outside today because it's too loud, that probably means we need to adjust what's going on in our life, right? Like meditation needs to come back, probably need to call your counselor. Let's really look at what's going on because something is breaking me down. So what this whole process did is it just allows my compass to be, it's much more attuned. I can tell when I'm going off in the wrong direction far earlier than a crisis. And so then I can bring myself back and that's, it's beautiful. And that's what you learn. And I mean, God, if everybody had the tools I have and the ability to be as in tune with your inner state as I am, I don't think we would be where we're at from an emotional health level in this country, but even in the world, like, (laughs) but you have to learn it and you have to have people who support you. And I got really lucky in the sense that I, you know, my mom never believed I was mentally ill. So she was basically fighting against this the whole time. And so when I finally decided to listen to her, then I realized she was right the whole time. If you don't and have that, if you have. What was yeah. the, the first name of the counselor that she. Um, oh, Alan. Alan. Yeah. And, um, and that was another part of the, uh, the book where I thought, well, you know, you clearly got lucky with yes. him as a coach and, um, helping you tune into what's actually going on in your system mm-hmm. and not rationalizing all kinds of things about mm-hmm. it, but, but being with it and letting it speak to you. That was just a beautiful piece of work. It's so in line with all the best stuff I've ever learned in 49 yeah. years doing therapy. That Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I, when we try and use our brain to fix this stuff, I think we're going to reach a dead end every time because so much of our mental and emotional health lives in our body and our brains are just the little monkeys trying to make sense of it all. So we kind of got to get out of that. Did I, am am, am I remembering this correctly? Did you say that your mother went and trained with Alan? She did actually. So she, um, my parents had owned a family business together. And then after I went through withdrawal and had just had such a huge transformation, she said, I'm not doing this anymore. I want to help people. And so she she sold her business, and now she is in a second career where she uh, she works with people. A huge percentage of her clientele is either in withdrawal or recovering from long-term use of antidepressants, and so she works with them through multiple modalities now. So she uses the one similar to Alan, which is Compassion Key. She's also um, – done she's a lot of hypnotherapy and like she's so good and to watch her to to have her tell me you know she'll tell me oh I have this client who you know obviously it's all I don't get details but she'll say oh I have a client who had this happen to them they've been medicated since they were nine and today they took their last you know Paxil and they're doing well and it's been 20 years I mean you don't hear these kind of success stories from standard psychiatric practices and it's just, it's the coolest thing, and I wish we could clone her a million times to help more people. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know the feeling. Occasionally I run into somebody that's just so good at that. Whatever they're mm-hmm. doing, I wish we could have every therapist yeah. be that good or every coach yeah. be that good. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I realize we're 
pushing up on one of my hard stops here because I have another patient coming in. But I wonder if you could just take a breath and get centered and ask, let me ask you to, to think, is there something we've already talked about that you want to highlight or something about your recovery or this book that you want to mention that we haven't even touched on yet? I've been thinking a lot about kind of what the legacy of this work is and what I want people to walk away from. And I think the, I really want obviously more information and education about psychiatric drug withdrawal, but I think I would also like people to, my goal is to have people just start to question the stories they've told themselves around mental illness or psychiatric drugs as a concept, because we've really been sold a narrative and we've been sold a narrative through advertising about what these things are. And I, so many of the stories I hear from people, they can always be traced back to a thing. Either it's something that happened to someone when they were a kid or it's a series of bad things that happened to them, or in some cases it's just years of being switched from one drug to another and nobody puts two and two together that, hey, every time you switch a drug, you have a you have a manic episode, maybe it's the drug. Like, I just think that we've really n- narrowed our view of this in a way that's hugely detrimental when it really needs to be expanded. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important and that really needs to be demanded from patients, because it's not going to come from the top down again, is, is the idea of truly fully informed consent. You know, I was on a I was on a call with a psychiatrist two days ago, and through the course of our conversation, I got he said out loud he's very pro medication to start. He's extremely pro medication, and he goes at one point he says, you know, antidepressants are bad for you; they're poison. And then he just kind of threw up his hands and you know basically said like you know, but what other option do we have? And I wanted to ask him, and I didn't get a chance to, said, well, do you tell your patients that? Because in my view, that is part of full consent. If you told your patients, here's the reality. These drugs are bad for you. They are poison. They may also help you with this situation. Here's all of the information. What do you want to do with it? That is truly informed consent. That is true or full consent where the patient has the ability to look at all the pros and cons and then make the best choice for them. That doesn't happen because I know he doesn't say that in his practice. Well, Instead, he just push, pushes the positive. That's right. But the, so, the other thing is you say he said, what other choice do we have? There are all kinds of other right. options. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> so again, we, we can, don't have like, any other drugs, further. but we have other techniques and supports and, and structures. Yeah. And, 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 and I agree. Like, I mean, but even in a world where we're, you know, where, where this is the last line of defense and not the first, that still needs to be said, and it especially needs to be said to parents for kids because kids don't have any agency. We, you know, when you're 15, you're not thinking about, you know, the long, when you're 15 and you haven't gone through puberty, you're not thinking about whether or not the antidepressant that your doctor and your mother and your father are about to give you is going to affect your sexual health for the rest of your life. That is not on your mind. Right. It's not your responsibility. That is the responsibility of the doctor and your parents or your caregiver or the social worker or whoever 
to know that and to be told that. And it doesn't happen. We don't have really informed consent. We have digital, you know, digital lawyer things that protect the doctor from getting sued. That is what consent means in this day and age, and it's bullshit. Yeah, I would have to agree. And, uh, you know, that idea of more fully open, informed consent would make – it would be a deal changer, I know, you know, for a deal breaker for a lot of parents to hear, mm-hmm. hey, this is a poison for your kids. Mm-hmm. And it might have these short-term benefits, but long-term, it's not a good thing to keep your kids on them, which is like mm-hmm. ba- the basic message from Robert Whitaker's book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, is that long-term, these things mm-hmm. have, have more downsides than up. So, And that also is reflected directly in the research. So it's not like anyone is trying to pull a wool over your eyes here i mean even whitaker well i don't know i know that in some some of some of the not whitaker himself but in some of the uh some of the research whitaker you know talks about and you know all of these researchers in some cases sometimes there does seem to be short-term benefit but it's rare short term we're talking three to six months and there needs to be a plan to get people off none of that is happening so well, hopefully, with books like yours and uh, people like you to promote the conversations, uh, we're heading in the right direction. And I thank you again for your willingness to share with our audience and for the courage it took to put this book out. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, the book is available all around the world. You can order it from – you should be able to order it from any bookstore. Um, it's also, obviously, Amazon and all those retailers. And people can find me. Uh, all over the internet at Brookseem. So that's B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M. And I don't know, I sometimes, I respond, if people message me, I do respond, eventually. Well, I appreciate that as well as you're spending time with us today. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much. Thank you, Timothy. I hope you enjoyed that pre-recorded. And as you can tell, I did not have a voice. And I'm actually getting some fluids at the doctor's office right now. So we are going to play a pre-recording as well. Hopefully we'll be back live tomorrow. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Do you want to give us a brief outline of what your worksheet's about just so we've got an understanding of where we're going? I'm doing a sort of daily lesson course at the moment. And I think today's one talked about that um, if you keep yourself invisible, then no one can see your needs. And if you, um, unless you're seen... You know, no, you can't tell people your needs and so on. So I realise that's a theme for me that I, I keep myself invisible, and okay. um, it's I just would like to sort of work on that really because it's been a theme for a very long time, okay. and um, um, I would like to step into the light. Obviously, I'm scared that I would like to be seen so that I can communicate just my talents and and sh- to g- genuinely share things. Right. So is there anybody in your life in particular that this plays out with that we could do a specific worksheet? Oh, is there a person? Or, you know, might be a boss, might be a lover. Yeah, I, might be... I think it could be in every aspect of life, but probably um, it's probably more difficult in in, in a prof- working thing 
Well, no, it could be in a personal relationship as well. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm not sure. I think I've gone invisible again. <laughs> okay. Well, we we're here to support you being fully, completely visible. Okay. And, I think I hide from myself as well. Yeah. And, and notice that we're a safe space for you to do that. And Thank one of the you. reasons we hide is because usually we have a stored experience of it not being safe. Yes. And that's what you want to access and forgive. Right. So. I, do, I do know the experience. Tell me more about that. What does that mean for you? Um, I just, um, at primary school, I got sent out of the class every day, every day for about two years. And I just used to hide in the coats. And Because if you were seen outside of the classroom having been sent out, then if a teacher, walked, yeah, a head teacher or somebody walked past, then you got really rollicked. It was it was not nice. So you just hid. Okay. Um, and, yeah. And I just, I'll just do that, really. That's a bit of a theme okay. for me. Sounds like a good worksheet. So it sounds like then the core of this issue is the desire for safety. Yes, that sounds want to be safe. Okay. You put your name in number 1A and okay. acknowledge yourself as love. So I who am love am feeling. Okay. So what are the feelings that come with this um, you know, here I am hiding in the among the coats, and if I'm seen, I'm going to be well. Probably, well, I've told off, really judged. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, what's the feeling on that? Uh, very much scared, yeah, and okay, um, shamed, really shame. Okay. So, if there's fear and there's shame. Mm. That would be two different worksheets. Yes. And so let's, seeing as how fear came first, let's start with the fear one. And I'll suggest that you plan to do, you know, after we complete this, do another worksheet on exactly the same situation and do that on shame. That will be a whole different, you know, in order for the mind, when, when you think of how amazing it is that, this mind is so powerful. You know, I'm sitting in a room right now where my brain shows me a clock sitting over there. It shows me a light. It shows me a television set up in the corner. It shows me a computer. And, and like, it's really got me, like, I could easily believe that I'm seeing all those things out there as opposed to there's enough data about those things firing in me that I recognize my mind is generating literally that whole world that I see. In order for that to happen, there's a huge amount of data going on under the surface to produce that. Mm. And so what we're going to do is thread by thread. and And the data is based in thought. The data is based in mind energy. It's interesting. If you go to the opening words in the book of John, and we'll talk about the the ancient scriptures here, and they're presented to us as something religious. My background's in electronics, a science study in physics. And as a physician, when I first came in touch with the Aramaic translations of these words, what struck me is this has got anything to do with theology. 
This is just how the mind works. This is how physiology works. This is how energy systems work. This is about physics and physiology and psychology and genetics. So getting to the reality of it. So if you, if you listen to the opening words in the book of John that the, the churchianity folks told us says, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh, you go, what, what does that even mean? If you go to the Aramaic, what it says is in the beginning was the mind energy and the mind energy became flesh. Literally, when I think of thought, what, this, what the cell biologists are now showing us, when I think of thought, that thought becomes a molecule inside of my energy field. That molecule circulates around in my structure until it finds a receptor site with a cell that matches. When it lands on that cell, it inserts itself inside of the cell energetically. And if we were looking from inside the cell, what we would see when that neuropeptide lands on the receptor site and inserts itself, what we'd see coming into the cell would be what we call chemistry. Now, it's all energy, but it's, this is mind energy literally showing up on what we call a physiological level as chemistry. And so not only is it becoming what we call the chemistry in our structure, but it's becoming the construct. It turns it into the constructs that we see. So what we're going to do thread by thread is learn to develop the skill of being able to access that neuropeptide that perhaps has been there for 10 generations or perhaps happened to me when I was seven and, and in the cloakroom or I stepped out for the first time and somebody raged at me or whatever, what we're looking to do is to be able to access that mind energy, be able to decode it, and throw it away. So that literally that chemistry of fear that's in the cell has been removed. That's forgiveness. And so each emotion is reflective of a different thread in the perceptual constructs that we have. So we're going to just pick one at a time. In this case, we're going to use the fear thread. Okay. And so that would be the thought. So now I'm going to remember to do that at next, that other emotion or any other emotion, a separate worksheet. Okay. And then we'll just step into hostility and fear are from internal corrupt data. So when my mind is generating a perceptual construct that is accurate about what's happening in the actual world. You know, that Harvard research I talked about, 10,000 brain cells are firing, 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity happening in the brain. Nine bits of data go into perception. It's been estimated in that same time frame, which is about a 25th of a second, there are perhaps as many as 20 trillion bits of data in the actual world. So there's actuality, what's actually going on, and then there's my perceptual construct, my reality. And whenever the mind is using any form of hostility or fear, that means that my construct, the world that I'm seeing, is built out of data that's been corrupted. Yes. Now, if you're working on your computer... And all of a sudden, you're, you know, you're doing a calculation or whatever, and you get a warning, corrupt data, what just happened? Nothing your computer is telling you is going to be reliable. I'd offer that when hostility or fear is moving, 
nothing your mind is telling you is going to be reliable, and you want to collapse that. Now, we live in a culture that says, oh, you know, a little rage, a little fear never hurt anybody. Well, my offering is it's the only thing that could ever possibly kill us, and it's time for us to clean it up. So here's how you clean it up. Okay. So hostility and fear, if you're following along the worksheet, now we're down below step 1B, are from internal corrupt data and indicate my use of sustained incoherence to build this disturbing internal construct. So here I've got this construct in my mind that's painful to me. There's a psychologist, or pardon me, a uh, um, physicist named David Bohm who coined this term sustained incoherence. David Bohm was a cohort of uh, Einstein's. He actually worked in Einstein's laboratory. He actually worked on doing some of the math with which they developed the atomic bomb. He was a genius in many realms, and he also worked in the realm of psychological research. And in essence, here's David Bohm's definition of sustained incoherence. I deny that the thoughts that are corrupt in me are producing my pain. I've built a picture in my mind that my pain's caused by somebody else. I refuse to own that my pain is caused by my own thinking. So I'm going to keep thinking that way all the while blaming everybody else. That's David Bohm's basic definition of sustained incoherence. And most of the world's living in sustained incoherence. Whenever you rely on your mind's hostility or fear constructs, you're in sustained incoherence. And it's nuts to live there. But, you know, most of the world is nuts. I mean, just take a look at what's going on. How crazy can it get? It's yeah. time for us to individually and collectively clean it up. Mm. So my denial causes my CBM. What is CBM? If carbon you were to ask memory. carbon-based memory, okay, you got that one. But for everybody else who's listening, Carbon-based memory, if you asked a modern-day physicist to check out your body and, and tell you what it's made of, the base element in your structure is carbon. And that's where memory is stored. And mm. there's no energy that passes through this energy system that isn't stored in this carbon-based memory system. Okay? Yeah. So, so here we are stuck in a construct out of carbon-based memory, and that goes against us living out of our true nature is love. The truth about each of us, you know, if you hold a newborn child and tap into their essence, the essence of human life is love. But if we've been loaded with all of this in sustained incoherence and this generational insanity, we don't think of ourselves as love, and they sure didn't give us messages when they told us to go to the coat room that we were love. Or when we stepped out that, you know, we were given insane ideas. And so what needs to happen is we each need to face that world of sustained incoherence in us and begin to clean it up. And that means cleaning up carbon-based memory, literally cleaning up on an atomic level the energetic patterns that are stored within the structure. And when I live in denial, and in this work, there's a very specific definition of denial. And denial is the either thinking or speaking as though something outside of me is the cause of what's moving inside of me. So when I say Bill, mad is moving inside of me, Bill made me mad. I'm now telling, I'm now living in denial. I'm telling my mind it's not allowed to show me the truth that this is my mad. 
because if I own it, I could throw it away. But if it's bills and caused by bill, of course I can't. So my denial causes my carbon-based memory to displace my experience of myself as my essence, love, and tells me the lie that this emotion, my emotions are caused by my trigger. Now, you notice that word trigger is underlined and in bold. And in italics, must be something important about it. Most everybody calls the triggers in their lives the cause. And so they live in a totally false construct driven by the goals based on believing that cause is out there. What we're looking to do is to step in here to clean that up, which is inside of us. So that denial blocks my awareness of myself as love and tells me the lie that my emotions are caused by somebody else. So now I'm going to look at what the story is I'm telling myself based in the first parts of number one. So my story, my reality is that your object of attention would be the teachers or a specific teacher involved? Um, um, I think it sort of became everything. I think, I think in the end I took it on board and I, I did it for them. You okay. know. But, but, but we don't, now we're switching issues. Yeah. We're okay. switching out of there's a specific emotion that I'm feeling. I'm being hiding out in the cloakroom and I've yeah. got this fear. And who, what, who am I telling a story about? Who's the object of attention? If I move from this specific to a general, well, you know, it's kind of like, well, like this and this and this, mm. I just shifted out of the piece of work that I'm heading toward. So I want to stay on track with this specific situation. So is there a specific teacher that was involved in this scenario? Yeah, there was, yeah. Okay, let's put her name or his name in. It was in his name. Way. His name's Mr. Bolger. Okay. So number one C would be Mr. Bolger. Yes. And if you were to describe what happened, how would you describe that? Um so my story, my reality is that Mr. Bolger yeah. well, found me out notice there. What's hap- yeah. Notice what's happening with your breath right now. Yeah, it's difficult to speak. I'm hiding again. Yeah. Well, what happens is the, the movement of breath is what moves mind energy in the system. And there's something that I don't want to look at and don't want to deal with. And you'll notice at the end of this sentence, there's a sentence and several other sentences in the worksheet. There's a reminder to breathe because when I shut my breath down, that's how I keep that stuff hidden. Literally, that's how I create an unconscious mind. Mm -hmm. So we want you to breathe. And tell me the story about Mr. Folger did. Um, Yeah, it found me in the corridor, took me into the classroom and then then spoke about it. Called you up in the carpet, so to speak. Yeah, in front of everybody, just sort of, you know, liar, whatever, all sorts of accusations. Uh, because I, I just got sent out for talking or being busy or just not being naughty. Right. But anyway, there we go. But it happened every day, every day, every day. Get out. Mm. Two, two hours, two and a half hours, every day. Take a big breath. Let your shoulders move on that one. Oh, yeah, let it open. Time for you to stop carrying that load of energy around. Yeah. Time for forgiveness here. 
Okay, so then just jot that in and, and breathe. And then you'll notice that a, a little hand points over to the right. Yeah. Now, all my life, my mind's been telling me that, you know, he was the problem. But then if I remind myself, if they, if Mr. Folger is the one with the problem, why am I the one with the pain? Now, clearly in that situation, Mr. Folger had a problem. I mean, wasn't a very nice guy. wasn't a very conscious guy. But today, decades later, I'm carrying around pain. I want to recognize that this is mine and it's about me. It's not about him. He's got his own work to do. Yes. Okay. So then let's step into number 1D. The truth is only my thoughts cause my emotional upset. So here I am in fear. What you want to do here is you want to identify the specific mind energy that you use to create this fear. And so the thought, and again, as with the emotions, you use a separate worksheet for each one, specifically related to the fear that you identified in number 1B, what's the thought that causes this fear in you? When you think this thought, it goes mm. to fear. Being told off. Okay, so I'm going to be told off. Mm. Told off, embarrassed, centered mm. out. Mm. Yeah, yeah, judged. Judged. Okay. Mm. That's probably the word. There's the one with the energy. Mm. So I'm going to be judged. Mm. And then number one E, is there a punishment thought toward Mr. Folger? Um. If you went back that first time and you're standing there, what would you, if you'd have had the power what would you as a young girl have said or done? You know, there are no consequences. You just, you're there. You, you, you got permission would, to do whatever. Yeah. I would like what to say that that's not true. That's not true. Yeah. Yeah. But with all that fear going on and the way you've been embarrassed, mm -hmm. is there something maybe a little more that you might want to do to him? Mm -hmm. Breathe. Like, I can easily imagine if that were me, that I might even be wanting to kick him in a certain part of the anatomy. <laughs> Punishment. Well, I was happen. pretty powerless. It was pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah. So in that... He, he, he was quite scary. He used to um, cane children as well. Mm. Yeah. So, and I so watched him do that, too, to some other child. He was really quite a beast. Yeah. So... If you'd have been had the power at that time, what would you have done to that beast? Oh, I've taken that stick, <laughs> hit him with a stick. And have used it. Okay. So there's oh, your punishment thought. That feels very good to say that. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's, you're trying to move the energy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're acknowledging a part of yourself you've been hiding from yourself, and that yeah. always feels good. Yeah. So I wanted to punish Mr. Folger by picking that stick up and using it on him. Yes. Okay, and then on yourself, what's was there a punishment thought toward yourself? Um, Notice what's happening with your breath. I know. And shut this it's, down. I know. So take a breath. I know. You ask me the questions, and I go all blank, uh, yeah. and because I'm hiding again, I'm going invisible. Um, There's your punishment thought. I'd suspect toward yourself is I have to just be invisible. Yes. I'm going to disappear. 
So that's what I'd put there for your punishment thought towards yourself. Okay. And then once again, you'll see that hand points to a little box. And the box, you know, most often the traumas that we hold are instilled in the mind and accompanied by words. So verbal release can be a powerful way. You know, words are representative of mind energy. Verbal release can be a powerful way of starting to cause that energy that's perhaps been held for decades to exit carbon-based memory. So this little box introduces the idea of verbal release. I want to start to tap into the presence of love in me and, and be in a willingness space to take all of this accumulated energy. And what tends to happen when we have an experience, you know, at the age of four, is we tend to play that out. We'll see at the end here. We tend to play that out over and over and over and over and over again our whole lives. Yes. And the whole idea of this forgiveness process is to put an end to that cycle. Especially, yes. Especially the self-punishment. I still do that. I work at a school and I'm, I, I you know, I, uh, I always assume if the head wants to speak to me, I'm going to get told off. Um, I, I always feel judged by my peers for not being good at my job. You know, it's it's it still carries on. And even last night, a friend wanted to ch- chat uh, about their problem, but I thought I was going to get told off. So, um, so it's developed an expectation, yeah, a structure where there's an expectation of being abused. Mm. Yeah. So what I'm going to suggest you do when we finish this, or, or once the uh, video is available, is you go back. And you start making notes. There's a there's a, a worksheet thing that we call a hydra. Hmm. And if you remember in Greek philosophy, the hydra was the creature that when you cut her head off, a dozen other heads grew out of the stump where you cut the head off. Hmm. And what you just shared with us is this is a hydra worksheet for you. You yes. just shared two or three places where it's shown up in your life. So these would be good worksheets for you to do. So I'd suggest you sit down and rewatch this video. We'll stay focused on this worksheet, but you rewatch this video and go through each time. The, do a worksheet on what happened with last night with that coworker and how your mind set it up. Do you know worksheets on how you've been treated at school as an adult. And they'd each be the hydro worksheets that help you to clear this whole thing up. Did it? Uh, well, I did write it down on paper, but then um, okay. I couldn't That's keep right. up with it all. Um, so first of all, it's yourself. Yes. I, I and said. Use your name. I release and surrender myself. My name. I, and use your name. I release and surrender myself, Sarah, to love. To love. Yeah. And then the emotion was fear. And I release and surrender fear to love. Yeah. And then number one C was Mr. Bolger. Oh, Mr. Bolger, yeah. I release Bolger. and surrender Mr. Bolger to love. Okay. And I release and surrender the story. I release and surrender the story to love. Well, be, be more specific. You know, repeat what oh. the story was, what oh, you wrote yeah. in there. Okay. I release and surrender um, being collared in the, in the cloak room and um, told off, I released that to love. Yeah, and being brought up in front of the classroom. And, and humiliated, yeah, and really humiliating. Yeah. Yeah. 
But so yeah. I release that. Yeah. I'm going to let that humiliation go. Um, yeah, release and surrender that humiliation. Because yeah. notice that your mind's still playing out that humiliation on yourself. And mm-hmm. notice, just, this is another piece of the puzzle. It, it moves in a different direction. In our codependence work, we introduce a concept of what we call a power person. Mm-hmm. And three things happen to develop a power person dynamic. And when these three things happen simultaneously, and it's usually a child and it's oftentimes with an adult or an authority figure, but can also happen in adulthood. But the three things that happen is that one, the person who we're going to identify as the power person, we're going to talk about instilling a power person dynamic in our minds. The person who's going to be the power person, number one, is not functioning as love. Mm-hmm has more power over my life than I do, and I perceive it as survival, physical or psychological survival, maybe even financial survival. They can be the dynamics. So when those three things happen, they got more power than I do, they're not functioning as love, and I perceive it as survival. What happens is, as an energy field, when you realize this body-mind unit's an energy field, the energy field opens wide, and it becomes like a sponge. And it literally just sucks in every energy from the environment. Literally every mental energy, every emotional energy, everything that's going on is, is literally just taken in with no censoring. In the future, that becomes the control of our behavior. And I'd offer that this power person dynamic is what runs the world. And until we confront it, understand it, and work through it in ourselves, it will run virtually every moment of our lives. And here's how it runs it. Once a power person dynamic is instilled, and it sounds like that was a moment for you where that was instilled, there are only three behaviors we'll do for the rest of our lives. And they'll be based on that power person dynamic. Now, this thing with Mr. Bulger might have been a reflection of something earlier with perhaps a parent. I don't know, but it really doesn't matter. But this is the Mm -hmm. dynamic. And the the behaviors that we'll do will be controlled by the level of stress that we're under. When there's no stress, you know, there's a thing in the mind, we do a course called Laws of Living, and we identify what we call the automatic decision system. When the automatic decision system kicks in and there's no stress, I'll do whatever I did to get along with my power person. When stress starts to build, I'll move out of doing what I did to get along with them, and I'll do what I did to resist and survive with them. When I become ultra-stressed, I'll do what my power person did to me that I hated the most. Runs the world. Mm -hmm. And so I ask you the question, have you ever found yourself, when you're under stress, humiliating people? Oh, um, no, I don't think so. I don't think I turn it outward and do it to other people. Okay. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to think about that one because obviously I have to do, I do have to uh, uh, um, do classroom management as well because I work at a school. Right. Um, so do you ever find yourself using any humiliation tactics to keep control in the classroom? Which means when I feel like I need to be in control is when I'm under stress. 
Well, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's culture, culturally acceptable. To be we talk about the children's silly behaviour, yes, silly behaviour. You know, at first I found that quite offensive when I first started at the school, but because we all identify silly behaviour as silly, um, I now it speak about acceptable. silly behaviour. But at first I found it quite uh, because obviously I was would have been called silly. Um, well, no. stupid and all sorts of words like that. I never called a child stupid, but uh, but we do commonly talk about silly behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, maybe but, you'll be the one that changes the norm in that whole system and honours children more because every behaviour a children do, do, a child does is done in order to accomplish a goal. And when we can support the child and their behaviours that we consider to be silly or abhorrent or unacceptable the child is doing them for a valid purpose. And when we can validate the child and open the space of safety and bring love present, then they can forgive what's in them. That which is in them can be removed and they'll step up to the plate and become totally different beings. Mm, Interesting. But it's about creating that space of safety and healing. And most of us don't ever look at these Mm. power person dynamics because when they happened, it wasn't safe to look or deal with it. I, I so, think I think the the behaviour I do to other people is to re- ignore them and zone them out. So I make them invisible um, if I'm upset with, with them. I'll avoid so notice, them. Yeah. So so notice that in that whole situation, you mm. what you did to yourself was become invisible in that power person dynamic. The thing that you hated the most was what he did that Mm. brought you to invisibility. And now you're treating other people as though they're invisible. Yes. Yes. As opposed to, you know, what what somebody who's in pain really needs is somebody to be there with them. Yes. Somebody that's a human being that is the active presence of love and, and is able to interact with them and hold the space that supports them and working through whatever's going on. I mean, that's the thing that's so desperately needed in our culture. And I don't care whether it's, you know, the guy who was just the president of the United States. You know, I wouldn't want to live in that man's body. When I listen to the language, the words, the, the, the things that he does, I think of, oh, my God, that man is in so much pain. And he doesn't have anywhere where he can open that up and heal. And so he just keeps carrying on the power person dynamic in his life. And that's what virtually everybody's doing. And what we need are people who are empowered enough to be able to be the space and support the cleaning up of this mass insanity that's running our culture. So Mm -hmm. starting with the kids, a powerful place to do it. Mm -hmm. Sweet. All right, so let's move on to number two. Oh, okay. So what I'm going to do now, so I've done that verbal release. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to start to acknowledge that if my mind's lying to me, I'm more interested in the truth than my mind's lie. And so in, in doing that, I'm ready to embrace everything that's in me, whether it's my own experience or generational patterns, I'm willing to embrace those things and begin to move through it. So number two starts out with an acknowledgement of that. Mm. And so I choose to love truth. And actually you could scratch that word love and change it to honor truth. That's a, a change we've made in the worksheet that should really be honor. I choose to honor truth 
and willingly face and process out all disease-producing energies for or from all of my relations or all of my generations. And I actually kind of took that out of the Native American um, teachings on, on healing, and they have a phrase, you know, if a, a Native American a person is going into a sweat lodge or a healing ceremony, they'll stop at the door of the sweat and they'll say, Matakwiasan, and Matakwiasan means for all of my relations. That I realize I'm not doing this healing process just for me, but as I enter into this sweat, I'm willing to take on the burdens from all of my generations and, and literally energetically become the space. Right now, there's some processing happening for me. If you were to look at, if you can see it on the camera, I don't know if you can, but the hair on my arms and my legs is standing up because for me, this is reaching a whole new level of, of the recognition of the willingness that I'm really to, and we can all take on the energetic traumas of our generations mm. and be the space for healing that. Mm. Because there's so many generations that went before us that didn't have a clue what to do about it. So, so with sincerity, I join you in saying that I'm willing to take on these generational patterns. Yes. And then number 1B, I'm willing to go through the physical, mental, and emotional symptoms of healing. Yes. So when I realized that this energy system has been in development for thousands of generations, when a, 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 a disintegrative quality of energy came into my structure, it created symptoms. And if I've adapted and shut that down and I have my fifth of scotch so I don't have to look at it and I do my little bit of rage or trauma and I don't have to look at those things, I hide that from myself. Now I'm ready to reverse the flow of energy. Instead of pouring trauma in and trying to keep it shut down, I'm willing to embrace it. I'm willing to let it open and move on every level that it can open and move. And there are basically three levels on which healing happens. And this is one of the reasons why literally our whole Western world has become drugged because we don't want to deal with what's in here. And the drugs are used to shut those things down. So now I want to open and, and literally visualize my whole energy field right down to my genes being able to open. And I'm willing to embrace and go through those energies. And on a physical level, Healing looks like any kind of physical symptom you've ever had and low energy. On a mental level, it looks like any kind of negative thought you've ever had and confusion. On an emotional level, it looks like any kind of negative feeling you've ever had and depression. So they're the kinds of things, and that's what I was talking about with the gentleman earlier in his question of stepping, dropping into those things. Am I willing to open my field and embrace and move through those things? Mm, yes. And so... This is just a request that you acknowledge that and our step into willingness. Okay. Um, I, Sarah, am willing to go through the physical, mental, and emotional symptoms of healing. Good. Okay. Now, number three. So I'm, I'm in the space of willingness. Now I want to look at what the key driver is for this pain perception. So my desire 
the constructive result, the exact goal that drives my pain perception is that I want number one, see my trigger two. So if you were to go back, you're standing there at the front of the room, Mr. Bolger's doing his thing. If you were to be able to just put a halt on that whole scene and say, Mr. Bolger, right now, what I'd really like from you is, what would that be? Go oh. back and be that young child. To teach me, to teach me, because I couldn't yeah. read. <laughs> I just got sent out all the time. Yeah. Okay. So then, so 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 now this is the goal mm. that drives perception. So in essence, what I hear is that what you were looking for was support mm. rather than rejection and uh, and mm. criticism. Yes. So. Each time you do a worksheet, you want to look at what's the constructive result. You can't, a worksheet won't work with what you don't want. It's like, you know, most people, if they've thought of that, would say, well, Mr. Bolger, I don't ever want you to do this to me again. That won't get you there. It's, Mr. Bolger, what I really need, what I really want is for you to teach me and, and support me in what needs to happen. And think of those kids in school that they say are silly. You know what they're asking for? Attention. Mm. Support and teaching. Mm. Yeah, exactly the same thing. So then write that in number six or number uh, three. Yes. Construct a result and make sure you breathe. Which, which there's two gaps, um, something, my trigger, something. So you're in number three, mm. my desire, the constructive oh, yes. result. Oh, it should yeah, just I be one blank. Yeah, I didn't read the whole sentence. My desire, the constructive result, the exact goal of the drives of my pain perception is that Mr. Bolger, uh, my trigger. I, I'm confused now, sorry. Okay. So Mr. Bolger is your trigger. Mm-hmm. And what's the concern? What is I want from him? I wanted support oh, and caring. Yeah, support. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, one one time he he told me off for having a reading age of eight when I was thinking, well, just help me. Don't yeah. tell me off for it. It's not my what fault. What are you here for? <laughs> You're exactly. the teacher. Yeah, help exactly. me. Yeah. I mean, tell me off for being naughty, but don't tell me off for not being able to read. Right. So how many times those children that your culture has taught you to think about as silly, mm. that's really what they're asking for. That's really they're what asking they're asking for support. Yeah. 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 Okay. So then that would be your answer. That would be the goal. Yes. That's cool. the core of this worksheet. Yes. Okay. Now, before we step into doing what it takes to can't collapse the pained perception here, what I want to do is tap into and bring forward the presence of active love. Okay. If you hold a newborn child and you tap into the essence of that newborn, you'll notice that the newborn is love. And if you ask yourself the question when you're holding the newborn, is the newborn loving me? You have to say, no, the newborn isn't loving me. The newborn is love. That's the essence of that newborn. And then recognize 
that's the essence of you and I. Mm-hmm. That's what each yes. of us are. That's the yes. truth of us. So I want to bring that essence forward here in number three. So I choose love, my essence, which then stirs the love and everyone involved. Yes. If I get lost in my pain and trauma through resonance, literally, you know, there's a camera called the Delaware camera that that literally can take a picture of the high energy waves that leave the mind when we think a thought. If I'm in my trauma, what tends to happen? You know, if I'm a teacher who's been traumatized as a kid and I stand in front of a classroom and this child's in trauma, I'm in trauma, then I'm going to tend to resonate more of that in the child. And what I want to do is I want to heal those dynamics in myself so that I can stand as a space of active love. And, and I like to tell a story you'll see at the end of that sentence there is the, the rose and the butterfly. Mm-hmm. It's illustrative of the point. Let's imagine that we have, we give a, the rose and the butterfly an ego. They inter, we introduce them. They meet. They fall in love. They have this wonderful time together. And one day the butterfly up and flies away. What happens to the rose when it uproots itself to give chase? It could die. It dies. Why does it die? It dies because it made something more important than being connected to its source. Yes, that's nice. Your source, my source, is love. Mm -hmm. If we make anything else more important, then we uproot ourselves from the truth of who we are, and we live in a whole false construct of self. If you go back to the Aramaic language, you hear this man Yeshua saying, in order for you to live, you've got to die that false self that we've identified with from our disconnected state, uprooted from love. We've created this false self. Oh, I'm strong. I'm powerful. I'm good enough. All these crazy things. And there's no connection to the truth of who we are. So you want to start to tap in more and more and cultivate your relationship with yourself as active love. Yes. So, So the objective of this step three is to bring love present into the process, or step four, pardon me. And then in step five, now we're going to do the action steps. 5A, and and basically this is kind of a review of the whole process. When upset, my perception, my mind's construct is built of corrupt data driven by my goal, number three, the goal to be cared for by Mr. Folger. It is a limiting structure constructed from a max of nine bits of data out of 10,000 brain cells firing. By canceling my goal, my replicate mind, and that's this carbon-based memory system can only replicate what's in it. My replicate mind's reality collapses. So by canceling the goal, my replicate mind's construct collapses and gives me direct contact with the underlying denied and dissociated parts of my carbon-based memory, which projects and blames others for its content. So here's the action step. Back, I'm tapping into the presence of love. The more powerfully love is present, the deeper the internal processing will go. Well, holding love conscious, active, and present, I now choose to collapse my mind's lies by willingly canceling my goal for Mr. Bolger to teach, support, and hold love for me. Yes. And breathe. And, and notice that 
you've drawn yourself a whole community of people that are right here holding you in that space and supporting you in this process that you're doing. Yes. Nice work. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, thank you. You you must have really been ready for this. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes, I think I am. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So I'm I'm canceling that goal. Yeah. And then there's a second part to it. When you realize that, you know, this nine-bit construct, underlying it might literally be, I mean, to, to really develop, you know, a picture my mind constructs of all this world that I think is out there that's really a construct from in here, some mass, maybe trillions of bits of data. And I have what, what we metaphorically call a nine-bit mind, you know, the nine bits of data going on here. How long is it going to take me to process, process through these trillions of bits of data doing it nine bits at a time? It's like, good luck. It's never going to happen. Well, 2,000 years ago, Yeshua taught that inside of us, there was a, an elemental force, an elemental force that was feminine in nature, that if we invited it into activity, in, in our modern language, we would maybe call it the super processor. But literally, each one of us inside of us, there's this capacity, there's this elemental force. In Aramaic, it was called Ruka de Kudsha. It's feminine. And by definition, and you'll see the definitions down at the bottom of the page, look at Ruka de Kudsha. She who undoes the effects of my errors and teaches me the truth. So when I'm ready to collapse this construct that I've been holding on to tightly because I think it's survival and I think it's who I am, when I'm ready to let it go and I'm ready to invite this elemental force into activity, what I'll find is there's an energy that starts to move in me that is not of my human nature, that is not something I can even comprehend. But if I'm willing to move, if I'm willing to be with it, it literally will begin to undo these unconscious structures. And if I'm in a space of listening, it will start to instruct me. That's Ruka de Kutcha in Aramaic. Yeah. There's, there's a power in us literally that energetically has contact with the whole world. And if we'll let ourselves be in touch with it, it's been called intuition. If we'll let ourselves be in touch with it, it will explain anything and everything to us. So here's the invitation. You're, you're inviting that power to go to work in you in step number 5B. Yes. So I invite... And whatever term you would use, the, the Greek scriptures translated these words, Ruka de Kutcha is the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have anything to do with some disembodied spirit being. It literally is a feminine elemental force inside of us that is never going to violate our free will. We can keep it shut away or we can invite it into activity. And literally you will begin to be taught things that are so specific it will boggle your mind. Yeah. So this is a space to invite Ruka into activity. And there's a blank there. You'll see the Aramaic, Ruka de Kutcha. Down below, you can see the definition. But I usually, when I do a worksheet, I just short form this. Do I invite Ruka? And there's several things we suggest you invite that elemental force in you to do. One, to incline me toward healing. It's like most people like, I'm in my drama and trauma, and that's how I win. And don't talk to me about that healing stuff. I need this rage to protect me while well, I'm shifting that. I want, 
I want support from underneath to incline my mind toward healing, to restore me to my newborn essence, love. And you'll see a hand points over to Rachma, that when that's restored, there's a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain that opens up and literally is the gateway that our created essence love enters this human form. So I'm asking for support in being restored to that newborn essence, which is love. I'm being asked to heal my denial and my capacity to generate the emotion. If you go up to number one, B, it was fear. You want to transfer that down here. I'm, I'm going to ask to be, to be empowered to free myself of even the capacity to generate fear, no matter what happens in my world. Fear narrows the perceptual constructs of the mind and leaves us in corrupt data. So I'm asking for help to eradicate that from my life and from my bloodline. And then asking, I ask to help an open, direct, conscious relationship with and gently remove the denied and dissociated parts of my carbon-based memory. So there's several things, and, and you know, it's, it's a big mouthful the first time you do it, but there's several things over time that you'll see that you, you'll start to get assistance. And these things just starting to shift like, gee, I didn't even do anything, and, and here's this change. And that's the power of this worksheet process. So how about just reading through that? I invite okay. and, you, know, it, it, you know, in, say, for instance, AA groups, it's called the higher power, mm-hmm. whatever term you have for it. Uh, well, I'll have a go with Ruka. Um, okay. I invite Ruka Dakuta. Um, sorry, I've got to turn the pace. Um, to incline me towards healing, to restore my... Um, what's a Rachma filter? Um, and my gateway to the frontal lobes to maintain love, my newborn essence, heal my denial and capacity to generate the emotion of fear. Okay. And help me to open. And, oh, and help me to open a direct conscious relationship. Um, oh, sorry. Um, and with and gently remove the denied dissociated 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 um, and projected parts of my carbon-based memory. Now, the first time you do it, that's a big mouthful. Once you get used yeah. to it, it'll, it'll roll yeah. pretty easily. So, so you've done two things now. I've canceled yeah. my goal, Mr. Bolger, to be of support and to be caring, and now I'm asking to clean up all the internal dynamics that I've created in my life around this. And let yourself take a breath and just be with that. And as you do, how do you feel? Yeah, I do feel uh, lighter. Lighter, okay. So then in the next step, I now feel. I now feel lighter. lighter. And then when I think back to this situation in number one Mm. with Mr. Bulger, Mm. How does that look to me now? Um, I do feel bigger and taller and more able and more, 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 more visible. Awesome. Mm. Nice shift. Mm. So go ahead and make a note of that. That's powerful. Yes. Yes. I might redo the worksheet when I watch back the, the thingy, mm-hmm. the replay, because sure. I, I've sort of written things down in a weird way and um, I can't. It's much more difficult to write things when you're on the call than when you're watching. 
Well, and, and you're in one of your issues. Here you are on the spot. Yeah, so the, yeah on the, the issue spot. that you're working on is here you are, the one that's doing this whole process uh, yeah, for yeah. everybody and, uh, yeah. you know, being out there. So, so I understand mm. that. And that's a nice shift to get, especially, you know, being right out there on the spot with that being your issue. That's really powerful. Yeah. I like that, that your, your language was so clear. It's like, I feel bigger. Mm. You move beyond the perceptions of a small child into mm. the perception of an adult, into a different construct. And that's, yes. that's life-changing. Yes. Nice. Cool. Thank you. Okay. And, uh, and then the next step, seeing how now you're, you're looking at that particular goal yes. and how it's impacted your life. Yes. You want to look at a time when you perhaps have violated that goal. When someone else wanted your love and support, and instead you did something different. So the the last well, that's part. That's probably my mum then, probably not being supportive to my mum while she's okay. had all her operations. Okay. So I'm going to write that down then. When I've not fulfilled the goal of being supportive, and that's yes. been with mum. And, and as you say that, what feeling comes with that? Um, oops, sorry. Well, it, yeah, it is a little bit anger as well. Uh, like um, I'm withholding it on purpose uh, to be a bit punishing, really. Yeah. Because she 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 could have done something about it, uh, but she never did either. Mm. So, so I think not, I get my own back. <laughs> yeah. So here's your hydra. So this I'd offer is a night, your, one of your next worksheets is yeah. to do one on mom yeah. and how you wanted her to do something and she didn't. That'll be the next one to do. Okay. That'll be another piece of the puzzle. And then the final step, step seven. A principle of the universe is that by giving, I first get the original. So I want to one tap into gratitude as Yinka has shared with us in the opening, you know, when the groups get together to share something we're grateful for. There's been a lot of research done on the healing power of gratitude. So I'm grateful for this opportunity to heal. I choose truth and perfect love. We, we spoke about it in step two. I want to honor truth. Once again, I'm reminding myself that Whatever my constructs are, if they're not based in love, it's a lie. It's corrupt data. And I'm willing to go for the truth. I'm willing to always be in the flow of love through me. In fact, you know, the best definition that I've been able to come up with in 50 years of doing, developing this work is that life is love flowing through a cell. Anything that we do to inhibit love flowing through our cells is a step in the direction of self-annihilation. Yes. And so I want to tap into that flow and be in that flow. Truth and perfect love. There, there's a, just quickly, there's a corresponding filter to Rachma that's in the frontal lobes of the brain in Aramaic. There's a second filter over the perceptual part of the mind called Kuba. The two filters together were called perfect love. And you remember they said perfect love casts out fear. This, again, mm -hmm. is a powerful psychological statement of truth. When Rachman and Kuber said, it doesn't matter what you're facing in your world, your mind can't produce a fear-based reality. It's not possible. 
And that means that you're always in touch with the highest levels of intelligence possible for a human being. No matter what's going on in your world, if you're aware that you want to keep those two filters set. So that was called perfect love in Aramaic. So I want to tap in and acknowledge truth and perfect love. And then I'm talking to now to the object of the worksheet, number one C, Mr. Bolger. Mr. Bolger, based on number three. So I'm going to do this, this goal setting. I'm going to set a goal toward him. Based on this goal that I'm dealing with of wanting to be be supported by you and taught by you, I'm going to structure a true loving, truly loving goal toward you and offer you this. So now, I don't know, maybe Mr. Bolger's dead and gone. It doesn't really matter. But in your yeah. mind, is there something that any time you think of him, you're willing to offer him? Um, and or if you happen to walk down the street and meet him on the street. Instead of the old energy that probably would have been claws out, what goal would you be willing to have toward him? This a smile. I will offer him a smile. Yeah, nice. Nice. And notice when you do a smile what it does to your chemistry. Yeah. I get the original, they get the carbon copy. <laughs> That's why Yeshua taught have Rachma when you think of neighbor, and, and interestingly enough, in the Aramaic language, the word neighbor means anybody that you think about. Mm. It's not a physical word. It doesn't mean the guy down the block. The word neighbor literally means anybody that you think about, anybody mentally near to you is your neighbor. And, and if you choose to stay connected to love, you've given yourself the gift of maintaining your human life. Whatever anybody else is, the worst person in the world, if you were facing them, you want to maintain your human life. You do that. By maintaining Rachma, perfect love. Mm. And you're at your most intelligent, your most capable. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.